Welcome to the Don't Get Hurt Twice podcast. My name is Jay Chad Parker. I'm board certified in personal injury trial law, and I try to do these podcasts uh, on topics that are uh, informative, but also um, maybe provide some of the insight uh, into the things that I think I've learned uh, a lot of times through mistakes over the years. And uh, next year will be uh, my 30th year as a lawyer. Um, and I've been fortunate to be a civil, uh, you know, injury lawyer, if you will. I was a defense lawyer for uh, what amounted to 20 years. And then I uh, essentially changed completely. And people that know my story know how that happened. Uh, but anyway, throughout my career, I've tried over 100 cases, that is, to a jury where I've gotten a verdict. And that's not sitting second chair. That's not, um, you know, trying it to the judge. It's really uh, the nuts and bolts of the, you know, Seventh Amendment uh, to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights is the civil right to trial by jury. Um, It's important um, because it really allows, you know, people to have their day in court if that's what they want. It also allows the citizens um, to give the lawyers uh, as well as their clients feedback on what they think is credible. Uh, what they think is deserving, um, and that information obviously uh, is transmitted to insurance companies uh, and plaintiff lawyers uh, who don't want to lose money. Uh, the marketplace uh, tells you uh, kind of where your risk is uh, in certain areas and where it's not, and there's nothing any riskier to a client or a lawyer than a trial, and, and that's never more true for a plaintiff lawyer. A plaintiff lawyer, uh, like myself, is by nature a person that must decide uh, literally when to hold them and when to fold them. Um, uh, A defense lawyer is paid by the hour by an insurance company in most cases. Uh, They have no risk other than doing a poor job and losing the business. Um, They have, uh, you know, approved funding at their disposal to hire experts to do whatever they want to defend the case Uh, to the level that the insurance company wants to defend it. Now, plaintiff's lawyers, like myself, we have to use our own money. And obviously, we don't just have one case going at a time. And so, you know, the economics and the business acumen of a plaintiff lawyer uh, and the tolerance for risk um, and stubbornness all fit into, uh, you know, your practice as a whole. Um, Because, you know, uh, some cases, no matter what you recover, don't have the economics to put uh, too much money in them, and you and your client have to understand that. But what we're going to talk about today is, is, is trials, and, and w- which I call the ultimate risk, and there's a risk-reward ratio there. Obviously, um, there's a, a chance, uh, depending on what your offer is, that your award is much higher, and so your client does better, and you get a better fee, and everybody's happy. Now, the flip side's also true. Uh, you get a, uh, you know, a much worse uh, result than you anticipated. Uh, zero means you lose all the money you had invested in that case, uh, and you don't get anything. Your client gets nothing, and your client's left uh, to try and negotiate unresolved medical bills that probably um, were either uh, incurred on a letter of protection, which means they still owe them, or uh, at the emergency room, uh, where the emergency room and the hospital still hold a statutory hospital lien. So that's certainly not the inco- outcome you want. Now, sometimes uh, 
these trials come about for us, that is the plaintiff's bar, uh, in cases that uh, the defendants believe that they can win and maybe they're not good cases for us. And that can be true for a variety of reasons. It could have to do with the credibility of the client. It could, be, it could have to do with how much we're asking for. It could do uh, for perceived weaknesses that they feel we have in our cases, uh, case, such as a language barrier or some way that made it more difficult for us to communicate. Um, it could be that they have a settlement credit in a first-party case, and they just don't believe that you know, me or anybody's going to get a verdict above that and they're going to defend. So there's a variety of reasons why a case can go to trial. But, you know, coming off the, uh, the heels of the, of the COVID uh, situation, the way the courts have been closed, uh, the way that they've opened up, and it, and it seems, based on my practice, that they've opened up a lot faster uh, in East Texas. And, and, and I think that's true because in the last four months, I've tried three jury trials to a verdict. And, you know, to other lawyers in, you know, Dallas or Houston, they think that's, you know, very strange. Uh, but two of them were in Smith County, one of them were in Kaufman County, and those are all East Texas areas. And each, each trial, uh, and I won't mention the people by name, and there's no need to, but each trial in and of itself was a lesson. A lesson for me, further insight, into uh, what factors matter uh, and why uh, optimism and hope uh, sometimes are commodities that you you need to keep in check. Um, sometimes you you know you start to believe that you can overcome things that uh, uh, at the end of these trials sometimes become painfully clear that you cannot. <laughs> and I'll you know I'll just I'll start. I'll start with the uh, a trial back in November of 2021, um, and it was a uh, a six person jury, which um, you know people argue over whether that's better or worse for the plaintiffs because uh, you know you've got less people to agree, uh, but yeah you know you can have one or two strong leaders on the jury and the other four people will will, will follow suit. But anyway, this is a case where I had two. Spanish-speaking only clients. They had to be translated for at the depositions. Uh, they knew there was going to be translation at the trial. And sometimes I think um, that, unfairly or not, strategically or otherwise, uh, insurance companies think that that's a pretty difficult uh, lift in Smith County. Uh, and the people involved, my clients, uh, may not have... Um, you know, uh, they may not, they may, it may be too much for them. It's too nerve wracking. Uh, you know, depending on some of my clients' immigration status, uh, you know, which is not admissible and not something that can be brought up in the courts, but obviously, you know, it's concerning to them. And I understand and I feel for them because I've seen a lot of people in that circumstances um, that are good people that do a lot for, for our county that, you know, live in fear of picking up a, a traffic ticket, you know, just about every day uh, because one, they can't get a driver's license because they changed the requirements to where you had to have a social security card a few years ago. But anyway, uh, be that as it may, if you're going to represent people like I am, then you're going to represent everybody that comes to you that needs help. But anyway, 
our offers were below the medical. They weren't very good. Um, Ernesto and Maria, uh, we had no choice uh, but to go to trial, and they were willing. Um, they prepared well. They came in. We talked. We discussed, you know, the questions they would likely be asked, and, and, and I thought it was really good preparation. Um, you know, I was all in. I spent money on an interpreter, you know, for two days of prep on different days for a couple of hours. And, you know, that's just me being competitive because, man, I have seen when I was a defense lawyer, people that did not prepare for trial. I mean, you can get exposed uh, live, real time in front of a jury. Anyway, uh, I met up with a, a lawyer. I'll call him a nemesis, if you will. Um, this guy and I have seen each other, uh, quite a few times and, um, you know, his claim to fame and he does a good job of it is uh, preying on the cynicism in these smaller cases without a lot of property damage. And it makes it real tough on us plaintiff lawyers. Uh, even when our clients are truly hurt and truly deserve, uh, you know, to have their medical bills paid and some consideration for pain and suffering, uh, just to round out, uh, you know, what happened to them when it was no fault of their own. But anyway, this is the point of uh, this trial. Sometimes um, you build momentum that's perceived, but it's not real. Um, and what I mean by that is the only person I've got to convince until the jury renders its verdict is the insurance company. And the insurance company's agent is the lawyer trying the case because he or she has a pulse on what the jury panel said, what the people said in response to questions we asked them, and which of those people ended up on the jury. Then, he or she's looking at them like I am. What facial expressions are they giving? What are they doing in the trial? You know, how does my client sound? How bad did the defendant look on the witness stand? As you can see, uh, there can be momentum shifts in, in, the, in the case where it looks like, hey, you know, we're going to have a really good outcome here. Um, but that's what happened in this case. Um, Ernesto is an older Hispanic man and a very proud, uh, you know, head of the household. Um, and, you know, when Ernesto would get something in his mind, it wasn't going to get changed. And, and I didn't try to change it because, you know, I'm there as their lawyer. I'm there and I, they hired me to try the case if that's what they wanted to do. And I knew that. And so we thought we were doing well in the trial. And not only did we thought, think and I thought we were doing well, is the defense lawyer came to me before closing arguments on the morning of when we were to make those arguments and said, basically, he offered me the limits of the insurance on Maria, and he offered me about 5000 short of the limits on uh, Ernesto. And so I took it to him as every lawyer should and is required to do. That is, this is not our case. Okay. This is our client's case. So I take it to him and I say, yeah, I feel like we're doing good, but you know, we've got this much in meds. It wouldn't take that much to get there. Um, but it's up to you guys. Well, Ernesto decides that, uh, that's not enough money. And even though, um, there was no more limits available for his wife's claim. They were short on his a little bit, but he said that's not enough money for what's happened and this, that, and the other. And he said he wanted to take the jury verdict. So that's what we did. Uh, but 
My point is, had we settled then, once we created momentum, we changed reality for a moment in the insurance company's mind. Now, that reality was only a perception because in the jury's mind, nothing had changed. We presented the case to them. They rendered their verdict, and we got substantially less than what we could have taken had we seized the momentum. And so, you know, that's obviously a lesson uh, for me, and maybe I should stress these points with my clients harder when I really think there's a potential for a downside. But at the end of the day, um, the jury, um, they see what they see, and they uh, comprise of individuals with past experiences that decide uh, what they believe is fair. And in a democracy, we accept that result. And that's what we do. Now, the next case I tried was in January of 2022. Now, this was a first-party case. That is, I had a named insurance company uh, as the defendant, which us plaintiff lawyers, we think, well, that's probably a better scenario. Because why? The insurance company is identified. Most of the time, the insurance company hides behind an individual's name, and the jury's left wondering, uh, is there insurance, or is this poor person going to have to pay all this money themselves? And so, with the first party claim, it's very clear who the case is against. Also, with the change in the law, um, on the first party claims, it allows me to seek uh, attorney's fees in addition to the client's recovery, which, you know, will end up making a larger, you know, recovery for the client because the flip side's really not fair. You can't tell a jury that, hey, by the way, my contingent fee's coming out of their part. And so what, what happens is, uh, in, in the normal case against an individual, which we call that a third-party case, is that, you know, if somebody had, if the jury wanted to award somebody a total of $30,000, and that's what their claim was worth, well, you know, they still have to pay me out of that. But in the first-party rule change, um, we can submit attorney's fees, which, you know, gives us more leverage with the insurance companies. Because think about this. If, you know, there's a dispute about, let's say there's a thirty or a $50,000 policy of uh, first-party insurance. First-party insurance means that you have first-party privity of contract. That is, you took out that insurance. This is your insurance, not somebody else's. You paid for it. You were responsible. You thought there might be a rainy day when somebody didn't have enough or somebody didn't, in it, didn't have any. So that's what you did. But what's beneficial is the insurance company knows that as this case gets litigated, that my attorney's fees are climbing and are a part of the overall recovery. So um, hopefully, you know, and it, we hadn't really seen it yet, uh, we start to get a little bit better offers in these first-party claims. Uh, but in any event, this was a first-party claim. Um, my client uh, was a very uh, nice, attractive lady. Um, she previously had a knee surgery. Um, she recovered well from that. It was caused by the car wreck. And we had uh, medical bills for very little treatment, but the knee surgery. And uh, we didn't have a total of 30000 uh in medical. In fact, we had about fifteen total. And so my point was this, is that I had a, a future surgery letter and a deposition of a doctor saying, eventually, not tomorrow, not the next day, eventually, the loss of that meniscus injured in the car wreck, removed by the surgery, those two things would lead 
uh, to a bone-on-bone situation at some point, and she would need a knee replacement. Now, I didn't think that was really a you know uh, an unreasonable position to stake out. Um, and my client wasn't having any pain in her knee at the trial from the previous surgery, and so what? I guess what I could have considered more uh, would have been uh, what the jury might have been thinking about as they looked at her and listened to the um, the complaints uh, through the history taken by the doctor, uh, as well as her testimony on the stand. Um, and surprisingly, uh, huh, I got a verdict just shy of the threshold that I needed um, in order to access the attorney's fee, which is the reason I tried the case in the first place. And I also thought that, you know, it seemed like a slam dunk in a way that they would award the future surgery um, because there was no evidence to the contrary other than just anecdotal evidence like, well, you know, she's been on a ski trip or a vacation since the surgery. But you'll be surprised what type of things stick in a person's minds if um, other things creep into the mix, such as bias or prejudice. And in this case, I think my client was, uh, uh, you know, wealthier than most in the county. I think she was nicer looking than most in the county. Uh, and her dress at the trial, while I thought nothing about it at the time, um, you know, including the shoes that she wore, uh, may have had some impact on uh, what the jury thought and certainly the excuse they could have used for the result that they, they gave us. Anyway, after the, 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 the verdict was in and I ran into a couple of jurors out there in the parking lot and uh, they were kind enough to talk to me and they were really friendly. And, you know, I, you know, I appreciate people that is people that serve on the jury so much because it is such a, it's such an inconvenience. It costs them real money from jobs. Um, and, you know, what they give you for doing it is nothing. It's usually uh, you're waiting around. Uh, some of the lawyers are boring and long, and it's just really, a, it's tough sledding. Then afterwards, you know, there's always a winner or loser, and the lawyers want to talk to the jurors. And, you know, a lot of times it's very awkward, but I try to be, you know, I'm always friendly because it, look, it's over. They did, they did what they thought was best with what they saw, and we all signed up for this game to start with. And so, you know, there's always something to be learned uh, from the jury's verdict. And, um, you know, you get an idea from some of the leaders in the jury uh, as to what the prevailing view was or what the most convincing uh, evidence may have been. Because a lot of times, you know, um, a jury's made up of a group of people, just like any group or team. There are team leaders. Uh, there is a foreman um, that assumes a certain role. And then there are people that are, you know, there are more involved uh, than, and engaged than others are. And, and they probably have a lot more impact or more impact on the outcome. But ultimately, uh, I got some positive feedback from them about me, which I was happy because, you know, you're always, um, you know, you're always concerned as a lawyer is the way that you try the case, the things that you do, you're hopeful that your actions, uh, your perception is not what hurts the client's outcome. And I was happy to learn that it was none of that. In fact, um, two of the jurors that I talked to in the parking lot told me that they wanted to give me uh, the attorney's fees I'd asked for, um, 
but didn't want to give my client anything. And I was shocked by that. And, and I didn't understand it because, you know, you get to know your own clients. You like them. For the most part, you like them. Um, and I, I just think that they, um, for whatever reason, uh, perceived the shoes that she was wearing uh, with the need for a knee surgery in the future is incompatible. And um, it didn't seem to give any real thought to the fact that the uh, the surgery that she had had, the meniscus repair, was done for the purpose of allowing her to retake her life, to continue doing the things that she always used to do until a time period in the future where she could, could not and would have to have it addressed. But in any event, um, that's what happens. And so I guess the lesson there is I would um, – I would pay attention to the potential perception of others, of your clients, the way they dress and how it would interact with the injuries that they're claiming and asking you to award money for now and in the future. This turns me, uh, this takes me to the last trial, which was um, in February 2022. And it was a beating uh, that I knew I, I had to take. And as a plaintiff lawyer, you know, that's what happens to you. Um, Sometimes you, you sign up cases that you, you kick yourself and you say, I never should have signed this up. Sometimes um, you sign up cases and they seem pretty good. And, and then something happens along the way. Something is revealed. Maybe a, a previous injury uh, to the same area that you're building your case on uh, that the client didn't tell you. Um, a previous car accident uh, that they didn't tell you about comes out. Um, a previous MRI of the lumbar spine uh, at a different emergency room that they didn't tell you about. Some things that, that challenge the credibility of your client um, and give the defense lawyer the only thing uh, that they're generally looking for is that this problem or this pain was caused by something before our accident. I mean, that's, that's the primary defense strategy. Now, that's employed in a few ways. One, um, it's an, it's deployed by ordering every single medical record they can possibly find and then identifying all healthcare providers and doctors in those records and ordering those as well. Now, this puts out a, a wide blanket for looking for uh, past problems. And I mean, if you're an adult and you've ever been to the doctor over time, I mean, it's difficult not to have said at one point you had some back pain after working in the yard or whatever. But anyway, that's what they're looking for, something like that. Um, then the next time that it's, I guess, brought out in a way that could yield benefits, uh, and, and it can only yield benefits, one, if your client is not being truthful, or two, they haven't been properly prepared. Um, and properly prepared uh not only means you, the plaintiff attorney, spending time with them and probing them on accidents, injuries, the past, um, because some clients feel like, well, if their lawyer doesn't know, then maybe someone won't find out about it. And uh, that's a very dangerous uh, tactic uh, to allow your client uh, to take. Now, if they're going to take it on their own and not tell you about something, uh, that's happened before or after the accident that you're representing them on, there's not much you can do about it. But, you know, some probing, uh, some straight talk uh, with them about the, you know, the way you could handle it if it was true or the effects of it appearing you're not telling the truth can be devastating 
uh, to a client's case. And I just mentioned things that might have happened after the accident. And that's also important because, believe me, when they order hospital records uh, and maybe there's only two hospitals or main hospitals and you happen to go to the emergency room after the accident that your lawyer's representing you own and you don't tell them, that'll get picked up. And when that gets picked up, of course, you'll be asked about that at the deposition. Now, the lawyer, me, might not know about it, okay, unless I ordered, which I don't a lot of times, uh, a copy of those records. I'll usually uh, send a letter and request them from them, and they may or may not produce them to me uh, before the deposition. Uh, I mean, in a perfect world, you would wait. You would always get the, uh, the records from them that they'd ordered. You'd look through them. Then you'd go over that stuff with your client. I mean, that's a perfect world. Uh, that's not always the world we're in. Anyway, and, you know, that goes to how prepared uh, do you think that this client of yours needs to be or, you know, I mean, some clients can almost operate on their own. You know, they're, you can tell they're so truthful. They have so much integrity. Um, you know, they have a pretty clean history. And after a, a prep, preparation session with them, they understand that, you know, hey, uh, they're going to tell the truth. It's going to be pretty easy. Now, other people you don't know, they're younger, they have different personalities. And, and then there's the, um, the super nervous client. That is the client that is scared to death of giving a deposition. You can see the red in their face and their neck just talking about having to give a deposition. And mistakes get made there too. But anyway, this is a case, the, the last trial that we're talking about, where uh, the case was great to a point. The mistake was made uh, in the deposition and it, the, my client uh, issued a, a denial um, as they were asked about records showing an accident after the one that I was representing her on. Um, she denied that, um, she was asked a more specific question, which really didn't leave any room for misunderstanding on her part, which was, um, have you ever, or did you go to the emergency room in an ambulance after that accident? She said, no, um, that was not true. Um, she did go in an ambulance after this accident. And she did not go in an ambulance after the accident I was representing her on. And I think that's the point that the defense lawyer was trying to make, is that, hey, that second one was more serious than the first one, even though she had never had any uh, back problems. She had an MRI after uh, the accident I was representing her on, and she had a herniated disc. But it didn't matter. Sometimes you can lose the whole farm with the jury. Uh, with a perception of not telling the truth. And so there, there we were. Uh, the offer was low. Um, and this is another example of the insurance company saying, hey, uh, you're going to have to try your way out of this one uh, because we're not going to pay you. The only thing you can do there um, as a plaintiff lawyer is to, um, one, cost them money. Um, you know, and it's a, it's a byproduct of, of being a prepared lawyer. You depose their doctor because you know they're bringing their doctor live, and I did that. Um, you, um, you know, engage in in a thorough preparation because at some point um, maybe they make you a better offer because they 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 see they're going to spend a lot of money, which they did in this case. Uh, they probably spent five, six, seven times 
what ultimately I recovered in the judgment. Um, and, and, and that's not something they can continue to do, uh, especially on these type of cases. But what it did, it proved one that, you know, uh, I will try any case I have to, to represent my clients. Like I said, I would, even if they make a mistake that, that through no fault of mine puts us in a position where it's unlikely we're going to be successful. But we did so, uh, and the outcome was, as I indicated, it was more than they had offered, a win, <laughs> albeit not a whole lot of money, uh, but we sent the message, you know, that, look, they should have made us a much better offer, regardless of the issues involved, and justice would have been served uh, with a much better offer, uh, and they would have spent a lot less money. But, you know, I'll tell you one of the benefits of trying cases. and. Uh, some people try cases, and um, some people say that they try cases, but don't really try cases. Um, in the middle of that trial, I had the defense firm, and of course, I have a lot of cases with this defense firm. And uh, in the middle of the trial, I sent a Stowers demand on another case that I felt like was better than the one I was trying. And they had said, the adjuster had told me from the word go, we're not giving you a penny on this. And my, my man had had a shoulder surgery. And this was a nice guy. He was not very educated. He couldn't articulate well. They felt like those were strengths of their case. But I think what happened was being the same insurance company, uh, the same defense firm, they saw how much money I was costing them. And I was trying the case because I said I would. And they know I will. And what was nice about that is that I settled the next case that I thought I was going to have to try. And they paid me the limits. Uh, even though it'd taken forever, and even though they'd said they'd never pay, uh, and so uh, you know, you know, uh, the trials can be risky. Uh, there's a lot of ways they can go south for you and the client. But you know, if you have a practice, a trial practice, and you try to build a reputation uh, for trying cases, even the small ones. Look, everybody likes to talk about the the big case that they tried, or the big cases that they tried and settled. Well, you know. Um, I could talk about those, uh, and they're interesting, uh, but the truth of the matter is you're likely, uh, as a personal injury trial lawyer, in most instances, to try cases that are not, not that great for you, and that's because uh, if you're a good trial lawyer, if you have a good reputation, you normally get paid uh, in, in such a way or made such offers to that your client looks at the net money they're going to receive, and they said, look, we need to take this, and that's what happens in most of the cases. And um, it's how well you can maneuver uh, when you have some bad facts uh, to where you don't lose money. Now, in all of these trials that I've described, albeit I didn't get a whole lot of money, but in each one of those, uh, I got back my expenses uh, and I made a little money and I made sure uh, to make it fair. There was no such thing as 40% on these, okay? Uh, you know, you ride with your client, uh, you cut your fee. If you're in my opinion, doing the right thing, and they get some money too uh, just for taking the journey. Um, I think it takes courage uh, on the part of ordinary people uh, to go through a trial, to expose yourself to cross-examination in front of other people, for people to get to dig through your medical records for as far back as they try to get them. Uh, it, it can be embarrassing for some people, and it's intimidating, and the deck is truly stacked against the individual. Uh, why more people uh, vote against their own interest in the form of uh, returning verdicts against their neighbors uh, based on very strict standards, uh, not understanding uh, what everybody's having to go through 
may be biased against me, the plaintiff lawyers trying to get something for nothing. Uh, but, you know, that's another topic uh, for another podcast. Uh, but anyway, I hope this has been at least, um, you know, informational to some extent, entertaining, uh, and something to think about. Uh, if ever uh, you find yourself in a position of being a, a plaintiff in a car wreck claim, or a deposition, or even a trial, hopefully the trials that I've talked about here today uh, have provided different lessons for people that were in different circumstances and me with them all. Uh, the point of all this was maybe uh, that you heard something, will remember something that you could use as a lesson to help yourself one day. If you're a lawyer listening, it's something to think about with some of your clients, all of this, so uh, you don't get hurt twice.